You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, episode number 55, Why and How to Understand Patient Preferences, an interview with Brad Hauber. Welcome to the Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector, designed to improve your leadership skills, widen your business acumen, and enhance your efficiency. If you are not already doing it, follow me on LinkedIn. There I'm posting lots of additional content, I'm sharing good stuff that I see. So just connect to me on LinkedIn, Alexander Schacht, and you'll get lots of further uh, updates. In today's episode, we speak about why it's important for you to understand patient preference. You'll also learn how you can collect data on patient preferences, what are the different elicitation methods that are commonly used, and most importantly probably, what your role as a statistician is in this area, and where you can find more information about disease and related topics. This podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the special interest groups, the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Just visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician and today it's the third, no, it's the second episode about patient preferences. I'm only recording it as the third one, but it will get live as the second one. And this time I'm speaking with Brett Hauber about why and how to understand patient preferences. And now I pronounced your name probably a little bit German. It's probably more Hauber, isn't it? Well, it is German, so it is Hauber. So you did it. (laughs) (laughs) Although you're located in the US. (laughs) That is is correct. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Maybe you can start a little bit with your intro, uh, with an introduction of yourself. Um, what have brought you to patient preferences and, and why you're passionate about it? Hmm, okay. Um, so I lead the health preference assessment group at RTI Health Solutions, uh, but I did not start out as a patient preference researcher. Uh, I'm an economist by training. And I spent most of my training and early career in environmental economics, where we were trying to use methods to value non-market goods, um, such as environmental amenities. Eventually, those same methods that we used in environmental economics became useful in Uh, patient preference analysis. And so maybe about 18 years ago, I started working with some colleagues in that area. And when we first started out, it was um, not a very popular area or or well-recognized. 
Um, we were sort of alpha on the side in, you know, a subset of health economics. Um, but eventually, um, things began to take hold and people became interested in the quantitative methods that we were using to elicit patient preferences. So, um, it's kind of been fun to see this from somewhat of the beginning, uh, about 15, 18 years ago to see it evolve to become its own discipline in a sense. Why has that changed in the last two decades in terms of the importance? Where where do you think is this coming from? I, I think there are probably two areas where this is coming from. One is um, the methods that we use to elicit patient preferences themselves are becoming more accepted. Um, and that ties into the concept that patients are, in fact, able to provide information about their preferences that can be useful and reliable. Um, but I think the biggest change that has occurred has been this general move toward patient empowerment. And that has okay. been, we've seen that manifest in a number of ways. We've seen, um, patient groups forming to advocate for the patient voice. And then either in response to that or at the same time, we have seen decision makers, um, including uh, drug manufacturers and regulators and health technology assessors and other decision makers begin to see value in having the patient perspective as a piece in their decision-making. So I think the whole landscape has kind of changed over that time. And that has all led to the realization that patient preferences can be important in decisions and that we can um, measure those preferences in reliable ways so that we can provide that information in a way that's useful to a decision maker. Okay, very good. So uh, I understand that we have um, a couple of overall in the industry changing streams that um, makes understanding of the patient preference much more uh, important. And um, the the tools that how we do that are much more discussed at, at different levels. So we have um, guidelines from uh, HDA bodies that talk about that. Uh, there was just recently something published from NICE about uh, patient preference elicitation. Uh, there's something from the EQUIC about patient uh, preference elicitation. And there's uh, case studies from regulatories that uh, take patient preference elicitation into account. And it also plays a bigger role in um, assessing benefit risk in, um, uh, in a structural way. If you want to understand um, how patients weigh risks versus um, different benefits and uh, whether there's a, a positive benefit risk uh, profile for certain treatments. So um, at a very, very high level, what are the different ways we can collect data on patient preferences? So in most cases, we 
when we want to understand patient preferences, we need to ask patients, um, particularly in medicine, where we can't necessarily just observe what people do, where there is an open market for um, for medicines, like there might be an open market for other types of commodities where we can watch what people do and infer their preferences from their choices. Um, so what we do is we create experiments where we can actually ask people what they would do under certain conditions. And there, that can take many different forms. Um, there is one way where we can kind of expose people to two different options in the real world and then ask them which they prefer and why. Um, but then there are other types of survey methods where we actually create hypothetical scenarios or hypothetical profiles where we ask people to make choices and by observing their choices, when we vary different things about the options, so we vary the level of efficacy, we vary the level of risk, uh, we vary other features of drug or service delivery. Then by looking at responses to those questions, we can then begin to infer statistically um, the trade-offs that patients are willing to make uh, among the different features that define a set of outcomes or an intervention or something like that. I really like this idea to kind of understand uh, um, patient preference in, in that regard, irrespective of actual treatments, because there's a couple of um, really nice advantages with that. So first is, um, well, lots of treatments that we develop um, have different profiles depending on the dose, or there could be different uh, formulations, there could be different um, ways to uh, develop the drug or design the drug. And um, you could uh, potentially take into account these different uh, patient preferences to um, get to a treatment that has a distinct uh, profile in terms of the preferences that the patients have. So, um, whereas if these, you know, if you expose uh, people to uh, patients to uh, treatment, you first need to have developed it. If mm -hmm. you want to actually design it to meet certain things, you need to ha understand the patient preferences of hypothetical treatments that you could go into. So it also helps very much to kind of take into account patient preference very, very early in the designs uh, of, of and the development of new treatments. So that's a very, very nice way of uh, looking into this as well. There we go. In response to what uh, you were just saying about using patient preferences in designing treatments um, and contrasting that with using patient preferences after someone has been exposed to different options and trying to understand what they think about existing products. I think both are very useful um, because from the drug manufacturer, or the drug developers perspective, um, understanding patient preferences is, as you said, important in 
the development process so that you can deliver to a patient what the patient what is valuable to the patient what the patient needs or is looking for um, but often where we find um, patient preference is really useful is when we have something a compound that has been discovered and based on the attributes of the compound um, and the clinical development program we wind up with a medicine um, it's still valuable at that point to understand what it is about that medicine that patients value and what they value about that medicine potentially relative to other medicines because once you have something that is later in development you still have a lot of decisions to make such as um, market authorization or reimbursement or those types of decisions even down to shared decision making between the patient and the doctor in the actual clinic setting um, where we're sort of beyond the drug development phase and we now need to make some decisions and patient preferences can be useful in that setting as much as in the early drug development setting. Yeah, it's really across the life cycle. And of course, you know, in terms of data collection, uh, we are not standing still after approvals. There's uh, further data that comes in. We uh, get further kind of information about it mm -hmm. and we need to understand how that additional data fits into the overall uh, picture for this um, drug. And also other treatments may enter the market that have uh, different side effects or that have um, different features or different um, benefits. And you want to understand how they uh, compare to, the, uh, to your existing drug. So there's lots of different applications uh, for that. I agree. I agree completely. And often we treat these studies as if they are applicable at a single point in time. And in fact, when we elicit preferences, we are essentially getting a snapshot at a particular point in time. But I think to your point, we always need to keep in mind that we want to understand preferences not only for what we see today, but for what we may see in the future. Because if we gather that information today and things change, which inevitably they do as we have new information become available, we can then use those data to understand how those changes are impacting the what the patients value are the benefits still um outweighing the risks um are patients still getting essentially what they need and what they prefer when new things come into the market or is this new thing that comes into the market meeting their needs better so in, in fact i think it is important to have that broader concept that even though we may be collecting preferences at one point in time the application um, really needs to be have a broader view yeah and i think that is sometimes a little bit of a difficulty if you look into um especially into disease areas where the benefits are not kind of um clearly delineated but just a few different symptoms but there's a whole kind of 
a variety of symptoms or ways you can assess these symptoms and and different features of uh, complex diseases, mm-hmm. then uh, you need to take into account uh, all these different features and potentially uh, a variety of different side effects in um, ways that you can actually understand what are the relative preferences to that. So let's say... Um, I've worked in, for example, in the in the field of psoriasis, where it's about uh, skin involvement. You also need to understand how uh, the itch is involved, or how different areas of the body are affected, or um, you know whether nails are affected, or whether the joints are affected as well, and how the the impact is on the joints um, in terms of all kind of different side effects, in terms of um, how fast the treatment is, how uh, long-lasting the treatment is. So you can think about a very, very broad set of variables that you can look into to understand the the patient preferences for for a particular drug. Yes, and, and I think that's absolutely true. And it also raises one of the issues that we often encounter when we do patient preference studies is that we cannot always, and actually we usually cannot, measure preferences for every attribute corresponding to a particular treatment or type of treatment. Um, it just becomes too cumbersome. So one of the challenges is to identify first, what are the attributes that differentiate the product's that are out there now or might be out there in the future that matter to patients Um, because we can't get good preference data on every potential side effect because the list can be really long Um, in and also when it comes to the benefit side of things understanding you know what it is about a treatment that impacts people's lives and that can be um, measured in a preference study is also really important. So you used the example of psoriasis. And you know, often in a clinical study, you'll have a measure such as the POSI 75 or something like that, that is a great clinical measure and really useful in clinical trials, but does not capture efficacy in the way that a patient thinks about it and in a way that matters to Mm -hmm. a patient. So one of the first steps in doing a a patient preference study is understanding, you know, what about a treatment actually matters to a patient. And then we can begin to say, okay, how do we capture preferences over changes in those attributes? So this is not just an exercise in throwing a profile out there and saying, what do you think? It's really about understanding, okay, what are the things that are important? And then we can begin to weight the trade-offs that patients are willing to make among those things that matter in their decision-making. Yeah, and of course, you need to kind of use language that a patient can actually directly Absolutely. understand. Yeah. So, uh and that's similar to lots of um, patient-reported outcome um, uh, questions that, you know, 
have very distinct language than the uh, questions you would ask for a physician because it needs to be understood by a broad range of um, of patients. So you then, of course, have the same kind of topics in terms of translating into different languages and, and all these kind of things. So um, that's where, you know, the overlap with uh, patient-reported outcome research is, is, uh, is very, very big. Looking into stated patient preferences, which methods are commonly used there? Probably the most common, I would say, fall into two buckets. One is the discrete choice experiment. And the other is some form of multi-criteria decision analysis. And it's important to kind of think about this, I think of these two things somewhat separately. Um, people who are kind of come from the decision science background would just think of a DCE as another form of multi-criteria decision analysis, because essentially in both cases, what we do is we take the problem, uh, the decision problem in this case, um, medicine choice, and we break it down into its component parts, efficacy, safety, mode of administration, um, other aspects or features of drug delivery, uh, those types of attributes, those things that matter to the decision. So in both, <laughs> in both a DCE and what I would call a more traditional multi-criteria decision analysis, we break these down into their component parts, and then we find the changes in each of those parts. So improvements in efficacy or changes in the rate of side effects or those types of things that matter to the decision. Then we weight those things by asking patients to complete certain choice exercises that allow us to infer those weights. And then we can begin to look at the trade-offs that patients are willing to make among all the different attributes. That then allows us to use those preferences for given changes to look at, um, evaluate different profiles based on preferences. So we could say that one is preferred to another or that the trade-off for um, benefit or the benefits outweigh the risks or those types of things. So essentially the underlying format is very similar. In a discrete choice experiment, we have something that is essentially purely hypothetical in the sense that we are creating uh, lots of different potential changes because we have multiple levels of each attribute. We then put all of those attribute levels together into profiles. And then we put multiple profiles together and ask people to choose among those profiles. That's done over a series of questions following an experimental design. And then we look at the pattern of choices that people make and infer from that the trade-offs they're willing to make. In a multi-criteria decision analysis, the approach is a little bit different we look at the actual sort of decision-relevant change, um, and usually 
but not always, but usually it is um, a specific change. What is the difference that we are looking at that is relevant to this decision? And then we weight that somehow and then sum up those weights to inform the decision. So the the underlying process of breaking things down into their component parts and sort of then building them up again is common to both a DCE and a multi-criteria decision analysis approach. But the method by which we do it is a little bit different. And they tend to be the two primary types of approaches to eliciting patient preferences. Often, however, when you talk about patient preferences, I think what we're seeing is the discrete choice experiment tends to be what, um, at least what I think of most, and that could be a bias because that's the area I come from, but often that is what we see most, I think, in the literature. Um, but it's not the only method for eliciting preferences. There are, you know, other methods as well, such as, um, the threshold technique or other structured weighting type methods that can be used to elicit preferences. And then there is this preference, um, that we mentioned before, which is we expose people to both products and then we ask them which one they prefer. And then after that, we ask them why they preferred it. So instead of inferring the drivers of, of choice based on these experiments, we look at the choice that someone makes because we ask them directly, and then we ask them what was behind that. So there are a number of different ways to do this. Again, the, I think the major ones are the discrete choice experiment and multi-criteria decision analysis methods. Um, but they are not the only ones. So I think we need to make sure that we keep a broad view of the types of preference methods that are out there. Yeah, in the PSI conference last year, we actually did a um, an exercise with those that were in the session about uh, swing weighting mm -hmm. and uh, looking into that. And that was a very, very interesting session where um, statisticians that have never kind of learned about this, were actually doing it themselves and were um, identifying how difficult it is and, <laughs> and where kind of the problems and, and the advantages. So that was a very, very neat thing. And, and speaking about the PSI conference, the upcoming PSI conference has actually a short course before the conference on the Sunday, which is organized by the Benefit Risk Special Interest Group. And um, there you can also learn about uh, stated preference methods. Mm -hmm. So just as a side note, um, if you're listening to this before June of 2019, then that's a nice opportunity. Uh, come to London and learn about uh, this topic. In terms of, you know, statisticians or let's say other quantitative uh, people, What's their role that, uh, that they play in this uh, area? What's your kind of experience? I, I, my perception is in the past that hasn't been kind of been a topic for, let's say, some more medical statisticians, but now uh, statisticians are much more kind of closer working together with um, 
people that have more economic background, and there's much more kind of an overlap between the different uh, roles. So I, I think that's absolutely true, and um, we've seen that in kind of consistently across the board. And it used to be often that biostatisticians in particular um, would get involved in our projects when we had already elicited the preference information. And then we wanted to apply that information to, let's say, the results of a phase three study. Then we would need the biostatistician's help to understand the phase three data and bridge the gap so that we could apply preference data to those outcomes. So it was almost as if the biostatistician was coming in after the fact in a very specific role to help us put those pieces together. What we have been seeing more recently is that biostatisticians in particular are becoming involved earlier in the process with an eye toward ensuring that the data that we get can in fact be applied and reflects the data that we will have available from clinical or observational or other studies. So the role of the statistician in the development of these types of studies has become a really critical piece for us. Yep, that's really good because Getting to it kind of after the data collection piece is, is reminds me of my time at universities when, you know, a medical PhD, uh, medical uh, doctor students uh, would come with their data to me and ask me, my professor said I need a p-value. Can you give me a p-value? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really difficult to kind of fix anything or, you know, get over some limitations. So you think, oh, maybe with a little bit of thinking it through from the beginning, some, you know, easy things could have been uh, fixed. So, yeah, yeah I, I really like that. Yeah. One other one other area where I think things are changing and the role of the statistician becomes more important is that as patient preference studies are becoming used essentially to provide evidence for regulatory and payer decisions and those types of things, the level of rigor underlying the statistical analysis um, needs to be demonstrated. And I think, you know, the people that have been working in stated preferences for a long time do really good statistical analysis. But what we have learned and need to do is to write the protocols and the statistical analysis in the way that, um, people who look at clinical data are used to seeing and the 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 statisticians have been really helpful to us i have learned so much in working with statisticians on how we need to describe what we do so that it is complete and thorough and useful and in a format that resembles the other types of evidence that decision makers are used to seeing okay awesome 
So you, as a listener to this episode, now understand kind of what role you have to play. Okay, so let's um, close that uh, interview with just some further information that would be helpful for uh, the listener to understand and learn more about uh, this topic of stated preferences. So there are, there is a catalog of patient preference methods that was developed by the Medical Device Innovation Consortium a few years ago. And that is a pretty good starting point to see the range of potential methods that exists. There's currently work ongoing by IMI Prefer, which is one of the um, projects of the Innovative Medicines Initiative that is looking specifically at the use of patient preferences in benefit risk determinations and um, HTA. And as part of that project, they have reviewed, this group has reviewed a lot of different methods for preference elicitation. Um, I don't know that all of that has been published yet, but that is all forthcoming. Another good guide that might be useful to people is the Center for Devices and Radiological Health at the US FDA has issued guidance on patient preference methods. And in that guidance, they don't name specific methods to use, but what they do outline are a number of characteristics of patient preference studies that they believe are critical to having a patient preference study that is useful in regulatory decision-making. And there continues to be more and more um, written on this um, in both the applied literature and in some of the policy literature that if you keep your eye out for it will be coming um, you know, rapidly, I think, over the next few years. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, and there's also the uh, a previous uh, IMR project, uh, Protect, that has also yeah. lots of useful information. And you will find all these links in the show notes. So just go to theeffectivestatistician.com, look for this episode, and you'll find all the links there. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brad. We talked a lot about kind of the different uh, roles of stated preferences, where it actually came from, how it evolved over time and why it's uh, growing in terms of importance and why it's important for statisticians to be involved in that early on so they can uh, learn for it in terms of uh, designing studies uh, to to do takes the right dose, for example, as well as understanding how the treatment actually meets the needs of the patient in the marketplace compared with lots of other uh, topics. Thanks so much. Thank you, Alexander. It was great chatting with you. This show was created in association with PSI. And next week, we will actually have a very, very nice episode about training non-statisticians on statistics a topic that nearly every statistician steps over and there's lots of very, very good learnings from Benjamin and myself over our career. So thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. And please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes that we mentioned a couple of times during the episode. 
and there you can also learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector.